This is the East TraumaCast. TraumaCast. With your moderators, Levi Proctor from the University of Kentucky, Lexington. Dave Morris from the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. And Matt Martin from Madigan Army Medical Center. This program is brought to you by the online education section of the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma, Advancing Science, Fostering Relationships, and Building Careers. Hello and welcome to another edition of TraumaCast. This is Matt Martin. I'll be moderating today's session and I'm really pleased to have as my co-moderator today, Dr. Andrew Bernard. So thanks a lot for joining us, Andrew. No, it's my pleasure. And uh, we, we've got a great topic today that, that I think is uh, critically important, uh, especially for uh, adult trauma or emergency medicine providers. Uh, we're going to be talking about pediatric non-accidental trauma, and, and we're fortunate to have uh, two very passionate uh, experts in this field who are, who are going to be talking to us. Uh, so uh, I'd like to welcome both of our guests and to have you uh, introduce yourselves. Hi, this is Tony Escobar. I am the Medical Director of Pediatric Surgery and Pediatric Trauma at Mary Bridge Children's in Tacoma, Washington. And I'm Elizabeth Polson. I'm a pediatric surgeon at Mary Bridge also, and I am chair of our Non-Accidental Trauma Subcommittee. As an important note to our listeners, during this interview, we'll be frequently referring to a guideline and algorithm for the workup of non-accidental trauma in pediatric patients. Dr. Escobar and Dr. Polson have generously made these available to any interested listeners for viewing or for download. Just go to the East webpage for this TraumaCast, and at the bottom of the page, you'll find links to download supplemental materials. Okay, and uh, th- this is this is obviously a topic both of you are incredibly passionate about, and and one that it might even seem a little odd, you know, for uh, surgeons to get involved in a topic like this or be that passionate. And some some might even say, well, this is, you know, this is the job of social work. So uh, question for you, I'll start with you, Tony. Just what is it that got you involved in this in the first place or so passionately involved in uh, NAT? Well, we um, – well, thank you for asking that, Matt. Um, we actually had a – I guess what Elizabeth and I would call a sentinel, uh, a case or event um, that shone the light um, about how we manage or even identify non-accidental trauma. And um, I know Elizabeth uh, will be happy to go into some details on the case. But what we realized was that we had no organized or systemic or systematic um, way of evaluating or even screening for these kids whenever they hit the ER. Um, and so given the fact that the the term non-accidental trauma has trauma in it, um, we felt an onus to kind of get some ownership on this and try to um, figure out how we were going to approach this and try to lead the way uh, at our institution in trying to do earlier and earlier screenings, evaluations, identifications. Um, and uh, And that's kind of what prompted us getting started. Um, Elizabeth, is there anything that you would want to add to that kind of general description? I think that's great, Tony. The other aspect is uh, I think it's very important when we undertake this type of a process to identify all the key players. And I was so impressed that throughout the hospital we had individuals from our every walk contributing their thoughts. 
and it was a whole team effort to do this. One of the things, Matt, that we um, realize and what's probably historically accurate at, uh, at other children's hospitals is that non-accidental trauma doesn't really have a, or didn't really have a home, um, so to speak. Um, sometimes kids would be admitted to the trauma services if there were significant injuries. Other times they'd be admitted to the pediatric service. And so we saw an opportunity to use our trauma committee structure to be able to formalize uh, our non-accidental trauma committee and to be able to use the resources that the trauma committee provided to be able to start to build something um, and not only build it but then critically analyze it. So that's how we got started with this with in, in trauma. Yes. And the other aspect is, like many surgeons and pediatric surgeons, I would see a trauma patient when there was an issue that needed surgery. And I felt that this was a pediatric and a social work issue. And understanding the severity of the problem within the world and our country, we decided that it is a type of trauma. It's just different than what we usually think of. And that's the real onus of dealing with this problem. Sure. And so Andrew and I and most of our listeners are, are primarily adult trauma surgeons and general surgeons. Um, so it, is this an important topic that, you know, that we need to be that familiar with? Or, or you know, do we just leave this to the pediatric centers and the pediatric surgeons? No, I think it's critical. I mean, for um, – well, here's where I get passionate. <laughs> so, you know, the majority of kids are not seen in pediatric ERs, right? They're seen through – trauma centers or ERs or even urgent cares kind of throughout the country. Um, and there's um, some statistics. The um, U.S. Department of Health and Human Services publishes uh, child maltreatment updates um, every year. And some startling statistics, um, at least from the 2012 publication, um, revealed that 48% of child fatalities each year was a result of physical abuse which is a shocking number, and the majority of these kids are less than four years old. And what's important for ER physicians and trauma physicians to understand is they're not going to necessarily present as an EMS call-in with the trauma activation. These are going to be kids that are being brought in by caregivers for other concerns um, and issues that can be missed. Additionally, um, Many of these children may present with uh, a more minor injury that could potentially be missed for non-accidental trauma. And what's critical about that is that if these kids present again with a second injury, these are called escalation injuries. And there's good data to support that when a patient or when a child presents with an escalation injury, their incidence of mortality increases dramatically and statistically. So, Elizabeth, how often are we missing non-accidental trauma in RERs in the U.S.? Well, that is not a question that's easy to answer, but even if we go back many years ago, uh, Dr. Jenny had written a paper uh, about missed injuries. And one of the things in her paper was, you know, when children present with uh, subsequent escalation or a severe injury, at least 25 to 50 percent have been injured before, so those would have been missed occurrences. And, and that's, that to me is just very difficult. And the other aspect that I think is important, it's easy to think of 
some groups of individuals when they bring their child in for an injury, you will think about non-accidental trauma. But again, in Dr. Jenny's study, the thing that's so important to know is we profile people. And an individual who has an intact Caucasian family, they have a higher incidence of having their first injury missed because we won't think about it. And so throwing out our preconceived notions because it crosses all lines of individuals regardless of, you know, their socioeconomic status, religious background, um, if they're a drug addict, it's, it goes everywhere and that's what's so hard. And one of the other things, Matt, that's uh, kind of important to note is that when you think of NAT, some of the first thoughts that come to mind are head injuries in kids, you know, um, uh, long bone fractures, et cetera. But there was even – there was a study um, that was published in The Lancet that uh, from the U.K. that uh, demonstrated that um, in – at least in their uh, cohort that they uh, reviewed, uh, 50 percent of the patients that they had seen had had a previous concern for abdominal injuries. So it's a full spectrum of um, – of traumatic injuries that could be a harbinger for NAT. And now you guys have introduced a great, uh, I think, algorithm and screening guideline at, at your center. Um, I know the two trauma centers I work at, we, we don't have a NAT guideline or protocol. Uh, how about you, Andrew? Uh, how, how do you guys handle that, or do you have a, a protocol that you use? I know that there is systematic screening in the emergency department the pediatric ED, I don't know exactly how they do it uh, and who does it. I know that when we were developing a statewide protocol for imaging for the state trauma system and deciding who was going to get what kind of imaging and what ED, we needed a separate algorithm on that, on that protocol for the pediatric patient because uh, amino transferase elevation was one of those mm -hmm. criteria that would indicate appropriateness of either referral or imaging of the injured child b because it's such a prevalent problem. So I know from a state trauma system level, we've had to consider this. How we do it in our ED, I'm not sure. And one of the important things about looking at your liver functions, if they're twice normal, if it were a trauma that was an identified source, we wouldn't pay attention. But because of the repetitive nature of child abuse, we recommend abdominal CAT scan, and that's recommended by one of the big multi-center trials that Dr. Lindbergh had uh, compiled data on. If it's twice normal, because there could have been an injury before, and the transaminases are on the way down. I think that's really important to note, too, um, what Elizabeth just mentioned, because in this day and age where we're trying to minimize CAT scan use in children um, with the, you know, actuarial concept that uh, each CT scan can contribute to a secondary malignancy down the road, um, there's been a, a huge movement away from uh, unnecessary imaging. But in this particular case, it's a strong argument to perform a CAT scan of the abdomen and pelvis whenever you see these elevated LFTs. Sure, and, and I think that's a great lead-in to, uh, uh, again, going through this uh, protocol that you guys have set up, and, and you nicely divide it into things that you raise a red flag uh, in the history and then the exam and then radiographic findings. So let's start with the, the history. Uh, why don't we, we start with you, Tony? So 
So tell us about these red flags in the in the history, because I think what we're I mean, what I was taught as an adult is, well, if the story doesn't match and well, nobody ever explained to me exactly what that means. Right. So what are some of the red flags in the history and, and, and particularly some of the red flags that we might miss uh, as adult you know, surgeons who aren't as familiar with this topic as you are? Well, um, so first to give credit where credit's due, um, we uh, adapted this from the Children's Hospital of Pittsburgh's um, clinical guidelines, which is unpublished. Um, but uh, we um, really just explored um, what was out there to try to figure out what would work for us. And we are a level two um, pediatric trauma center in a community. Um, and But nevertheless, a very, very busy ER and see um, all sorts of um, uh, injured children, traumatic, uh, traumatically injured children, as well as medical emergencies. So we liked this algorithm in particular because it did break it down into screening. So in the world of NAT, um, once you've diagnosed the subdural, it's probably going to be a little bit easier to start making decisions about where to go next. But the difficulty is the child that shows up that something's not quite right. The worst difficulty is the one that everything seems to be right and there was an NAT that no one is noticing. So um, we adapted this and then um, we retrospectively actually looked at our NAT data within our trauma registry to analyze these red flags to see if anything in particular was popping up over and over again. And so what we found was a missing or a consistent history. So the, the concept being dad gives, or usually, unfortunately, some sort of single or some sort of male in the household gives one type of history. Mom is giving a different type of history. Grandparents are giving a different type of history. Um, and uh, this starts to spark the kind of, wait a minute, this doesn't sound quite right. Um, the story or a inconsistent history, something that couldn't potentially be true, such as you get a uh, the story of a three-month-old who toddled over to the stairs and then fell down. Well, three-month-olds aren't really walking. So that is an important piece. The unwitnessed injury, the six-month-old that somehow magically now has a, um, some sort of deformity of the upper extremity. Um, so these are all somewhat obvious um, but important elements of the history that should start to prompt a screening process. Some of the more subtle things um, are delays in seeking care and prior ED visits. Um, this goes towards that whole escalation injury that we mentioned a little bit earlier. Um, so it's unusual for a one-year-old to have had multiple ED visits, um, and so that should start to prompt something. Another concern is, are we taking a full social history? So is there domestic violence in the home? Did anyone actually ask that? Um, what was startling to me once was now, once this started becoming part of my everyday evaluations, I actually asked the question of a uh, family member, and mom told me, yes, last week we moved out of the house because my husband was beating me. And I never would have gotten that piece of history two years ago, three years ago. So, so the idea that uh, if you don't ask... Uh, Correct. Uh, the, the, the idea that you know, there's no need to ask because they're unlikely to tell you, that's false. It's false. Ask, it's absolutely. Ask and you'll be surprised how much they'll tell you. 
That's exactly right. And then some of the comorbidities. We don't think a lot about comorbidities in babies um, all that often unless you kind of live in the world of peds. But a couple of red flags to keep in mind. History of prematurity. There was probably a long NICU stay, as well as any sort of low birth weight or intrauterine growth retardation, because that may belie other medical conditions which make it more difficult for the families to take care of these children in the home and potentially raise that risk of, of um, non-accidental trauma. Okay, and uh, Elizabeth, do you have anything to add to that? Well, yes, I think one of the hard things for every healthcare provider is to develop a way in which they ask the questions. And that's one of the communication tools that we've really been working on is to ask in a non-judgmental and supportive way. Because whenever there's a question that a child may be abused, um, I think in every institution there will be people trying to figure out who did it. That's not really what we need to think about. We only need to think about identification and doing the medical care because we're very blessed with Child Protective Services, a legal system that will help with the who did it. And who should be doing the asking? I mean, I mean, should, should I be doing the asking as the trauma surgeon? You know, should the, the social worker? Should I call a pediatrician? Well, I think it really depends upon what, uh, how you feel about asking the question. And this is something, if you're comfortable asking, if you feel more comfortable with the social worker. But I really feel as a surgeon, we deal with so many difficult things that this is good for the surgeon to ask. You know, and we um, have found that. With a kind of with when we um, you know when we employed the standardized approach, we almost had a script where it was no longer judgmental. This is what we do for every child who presents with these series of findings. We ask these series of questions. Doesn't mean that we're implying that you did any of this, but this is what we need to ask whenever we see this. And yeah, so we firmly believe that the surgeons should ask. Mm -hmm. And the reason. I concur so completely with Tony just had to say is if we ask in a non-judgmental way, then we will not have parents also changing stories. That's one of the children if we get time to talk about that case. Because if, if the parent thinks that maybe they're being judged, then sometimes stories change. And unless the different proprietors speak with them, speak within each other, we may miss the history or inconsistent or changing history. And what about the, uh, I think there's a bias sometimes of this This is really a problem in uh, low-income, low socioeconomic status families uh, and probably, you know, isn't a problem in some of the, you know, higher socioeconomic statuses. Is that correct, incorrect? Completely untrue. This is an Every element, walk of life, socioeconomic, race, creed, there have been some of the most uh, shocking, um, uh, you know, upstanding members of society, etc., cetera, um, that have um, inflicted uh, the same injuries as in a lower socioeconomic status uh, families. So this, this, that's, and I think that's why it's so critical that we do a blanket screen. Um, for this, or we will miss because of profiling um, in our own heads. Mm -hmm. um, so that's why, yes, agreed. And one of the things as I lead in, if I see parents getting very uncomfortable with questions, mm -hmm. is 
it's similar to what Tony said, but I'll say, if your child had a cough and didn't clear and had to do a chest x-ray, this is just another part of the evaluation when things are not occurring in the way which they typically do for a child of your child's age. Sure. Okay, then, uh, Elizabeth, let's move on from the red flag history to red flag physical exam findings. And, again, some of these, you know, are, are obvious ones, but a, a couple of these were actually surprising to me. So so could you just cover, uh, you know, your approach to the physical exam findings that should raise a red flag? Um, we'll start at the beginning of our guidelines, if I may. And the torn frenulum, that's not something that I used to watch or look for. And part of the history that will be given is, oh, well, I was trying to feed my baby and then there was bleeding in the mouth. Um, so uh, there's the frenulum under the tongue as well as in the lips. So there are three that you can look at because that usually goes with a forced object in the baby's mouth. Uh, a child that isn't gaining weight correctly, and we like to have the head circumference included in this. That's one of the hardest measurements we have getting people to do because if the head circumference is off in regards to the size of the child, um, then we think about has there been bleeding, especially in the small child. One of the really important is to look at patterns of bruising and the location as well as the age. So if a child doesn't walk, they shouldn't bruise. And that's just a given. Um, in the non-ambulatory child. And then the area where children should not have bruises would be in the TENS areas. Basically, uh, that's the torso area, like if you think of a girl's bathing suit, and uh, at the ears and the neck. And one of the things that we found in our initial uh, retrospective review, uh, perineal injuries carried a very high mortality. Um, and that's included in the TENS area, but this was a, a surprise because we haven't seen that in the literature. And then there are different objects. Um, there are ropes, uh, you know, cigarette burns that can be put out, and then immersion-type injuries. So a child can burn their hand with touching something if they're older or moving, but they shouldn't have an immersion pattern. That's uh, very, very concerning. Sure, and then the, the bruising, of course, you know, having 11-month-old twins myself who uh, I'm convinced that babies are suicidal. <laughs> <laughs> so you say any bruise in a non-ambulating child, do you mean walking non-ambulating or, I mean, because my guys crawl and they'll crawl right off the edge of anything nearby. Um, um, but, so when you say that, do you mean, you mean any time before they're walking? Well, cruising children can get bruises. So definitely crawling can mm -hmm. lead to bruising. You know, what we do is any bruise in a child less than four months of age raises the, that's the 10-4, um, raises the concern, period. After four months of age, it's in the torso, ears, and neck area. Because I tell you, I have three kids myself, they are covered in bruises. That would have been reported to CPS years ago if, if uh, an arm bruise would happen. <laughs> When you start really talking to people about this, too, you have to bring some individuals off the cliff because they'll say, I want you to come and look at these bruises. And I said, you know, he's a normal child. He's got bruised up shins. What can I say? Sure. You know, so, you know, so when people become uh, more vigilant, 
the location becomes very important. And then the other thing is you cannot date a bruise. As a surgeon, you know that. But many people will try to say this bruise is a week old because it's green, et cetera, et cetera. But there's no such thing as dating a bruise. And part of the problem with writing about dating of bruises, it can let some perpetrators off the hook. Now, I know we're not talking about the legal aspects, but charting is a very important part of what we do as clinicians. And do you routinely photo document these bruises, or is it only if they're really concerning? Um, we document. By photo photography? Yes. Okay. The police and then our child abuse experts will do that, so there's appropriate chain of custody. Okay. And, uh, Andrew, you have any questions on the exam or history? Yeah, the 10-4 that you spoke of is the one that we we have a – a requirement for physician education in the area of abusive head trauma now in Kentucky. And uh, the 10-4 is one of the things that's part of that standard educational slide deck that we're all required to go through and, and do recurrent training on. So, so that resonated with me, and I had heard the bruising in, in any child under four months. I remember that being one of those distinct clinical indicators as well. Mm-hmm. And the other thing in terms of examining these children, um, it used to be that I would just examine them when I did my primary, and then I'd come by and did the surgical exam where you listen to the heart, the lungs, and touch the tummy. However, in this type of an injury, the bruises will evolve over time. So you can have a child and you won't see bruises, and then you examine them the next day, and you can see fingerprint bruising uh, with a little baby who's been squeezed, and they may not show up. So I think it's repeating the exam the next day is very critically important in this group of kids. Okay, and then, Tony, let's move on to the radiographic findings. Sure. So uh, what are some red flags? Uh, and, and, again, you know, my going back to my med school and residency, it was, uh, I think a spiral, flac spiral yeah. fracture, and then in some kids, a skull fracture, and that's about all I remember. So so what are some of the red flags and, and some of the ones that we may be missing? Well, we have um, – so first of all, any fractures in children less than two years of age um, should at the very minimum just give pause and explore what the reason was. Hands down, rib fractures in infants. You guys probably remember this, but it takes quite a bit of force to break a rib in an infant. The chest wall is incredibly pliable. Um, it's written about all the time in thoracic trauma. Um, you're much more likely to get a um, pulmonary contusion in an infant rather than a rib fracture if they're involved in a motor vehicle collision. So some of the classic findings are posterior rib fractures from when the baby has been grabbed around the torso and squeezed. Um, any rib fracture in an infant should raise concerns. Um, any, um, any fractures in a non-ambulating children should also. Um, as you probably are aware, or maybe I'll mention it for the first time, anytime we start the screening process, um, in, especially in children less than a year of age, some places may go a little bit older. Um, we do what's called a skeletal survey. Uh, so it's a pediatric skeletal survey um, in which we do a defined, um, uh, systematic, complete x-ray evaluation of the child um, and look for any other he um, healing fractures that may have been missed in the past. So the combination of multiple undiagnosed healing fractures definitely raises the concern for NAT. 
and yes, skull fractures. But interestingly, also subdurals or subarachnoid hemorrhages in children less than one year of age without a skull fracture, kind of, although this is a term that is no longer popular, the, if you remember the concept of the shaken baby um, type of syndrome, um, uh, is also highly suspicious for non-accidental trauma. So those are the radiographic findings um, that we use as part of our screening. If the LFTs are elevated, that's part of our standard lab order set, then we definitely get a CAT scan of the abdomen and pelvis. Well, yeah, I think it's great you have a protocol that, you know, that you do uniformly, because then it also makes it much easier to say, oh, this is, we do this for everyone, so it's less like you're pointing fingers. Uh, Andrew, you have any, uh, any questions to add? Yeah, folks, um, there's some significance to when you're, when you're beginning to You've already obtained a social history, but now you're now you're seeing clinical evidence that's concerning to you. There is some significance to the social construct of the home, though, isn't there? Um, because perpetrators uh, can not by socioeconomic status, like we talked about, but in terms of family role, have, there is some significance there, right? Father mother's boyfriend, who is living in the home. That's part of the relevance here, isn't it? That would be part of our standard social history um, with our consult form that we do. We have a standard form that all of the surgical services uses, and our trauma patients are admitted with our pediatric, it's called inpatient pediatric trauma service, so we see them jointly. And so, But, yes, you're, you're absolutely right. You know, these are elements of the demographics that um, that raise suspicion. Um, it, uh, it it can't be helped but noted that oftentimes those perpetrators do have some sort of uh, that participation in the home, Andrew. That's right. And then substance abuse, domestic violence history, criminal history, that that doesn't incriminate people, but, but those are risk factors. Those risk factors may not be present and abuse may still be taking place, but but those, those are risk factors, too, right? Yes. Oh, yes. And if you look at child maltreatment, um, which would include your non-accidental trauma, uh, as well as um, medical neglect and sexual abuse, the role of the mother comes into this higher than what I traditionally have thought. Um, I have always thought of boyfriend of the mother or a broken home. But, and that is very important, of course, is with the social history or when you have uh, people who don't have an established home because then you have so many people with exposure to the child, you know, living in group homes, things of that nature. So these are all things that we worry about or have concerns about. Well, I will tell you that we absolutely utilize our social work, <laughs> our social workers who are amazing to help navigate the system. We're also very lucky. We are a children's hospital, so we do have an entire department of child abuse that is that exists, and we work collaboratively with them. I mean, um, I will be honest, as a surgeon, I'm not sitting there after the initial evaluation and the trauma evaluation for two to three hours um, getting an incredibly intense social history. We partner with our child abuse experts and with the social workers um, to be able to get the whole picture. And I think one of the advantages of having the system in place is that we're actually able to expedite this now 
and it does not necessarily require an admission if they come in with a minor injury and we're able to appropriately get them into a safe home or foster care, um, we're actually doing discharges from the emergency department. So in a community hospital, in a rural area, this seems like the worst case scenario for a child victim uh, of abuse uh, to find themselves because the, the the personnel, the staffing in those small ERs is less. They can still be quite busy, these uh, community hospitals in more rural areas. What would you recommend to those ED nurses and physicians about how they use the referral children's hospital to help them with these cases? Is there a threshold or criteria by which the, those providers can say, we're going to send you up to the children's hospital and let them evaluate you further or however they should explain it. Absolutely. I mean, it's uh, the onus is on us. You know, as a level one or a level two pediatric trauma center, the onus is on us to be the, you know, to serve our region um, or, you know, or go out even further. Um, so what we've done in trying to take this message out is actually go speak to the community emergency departments. Um, and I've done, you know, between Elizabeth and I, I can, I think we've done like 15 to 20 road shows um, getting out into our area of Washington to really let the ERs out there know you're not alone with this. Um, we can help. And as part of our um, screening tool, we have part one, which is the red flags, and then part two, suspicion is raised, do you need help, call us. Um, and I think that that has been a message that's been extremely welcome and well-received by our colleagues in the levels threes, fours, or even just community emergency departments. Um, that they're not alone with this because it's terrifying. And then you've got, in the worst-case scenarios, an extremely injured child, and it's heartbreaking. And, you know, oftentimes these community emergency departments are not equipped to, to deal with that uh, emotional burden that comes with taking care of these children. So I think that it's helped a lot, that at least in our area, that they don't feel alone. So, uh, so Elizabeth, uh, one of the things I, uh, I thought was really great on the, the algorithm you guys have is the concept of a care team huddle uh, prior to discharge on these patients if, if some suspicion has been raised. So, so can you comment on that process briefly? Yes. Um, this, for me, was one of the most important things that we worked on within our group. Um, sometimes uh, a perpetrator will do something in front of another member of the team, whether it's a medical assistant, a nurse, or anyone, and then they will hide it. So what I think is really important, and I see this happening now, I'll be sitting in the emergency room, and I'll have one of the individuals who's taken vital signs, and they'll say, hey, Dr. Polson, I'm kind of worried with how I saw this parent interact with this child. So we want to have everyone have a voice. And before a child leaves the emergency room, um, if there's any suspicion of non-accidental trauma, it's the social services and the emergency room and nursing physician and inside the hospital. And we had been worried that this may be difficult. So in-person is always the best, but it's not practical with surgeons. So we'll do this sometimes by phone. The simple, are you comfortable with the disposition of this patient going home? 
And so we're tracking and documenting that so that we know everyone's on the same page. And it, I think it's just it, – I really want to highlight the buy-in that came from this multidisciplinary group so that the pediatricians are documenting the huddle. The emergency department is documenting the huddle. Um, it's just um, – it really has raised the awareness of this problem throughout our organization, and I think that that has really gone towards hopefully decreasing some of the escalation injuries that we had been seeing prior. Sure, and uh, so why don't we uh, uh, move on and, and close up with uh, maybe uh, you know one or two cases that uh, you guys have personally handled, and uh, why don't we go out on a high note? So let, let's start with. Uh, you know, has there been a case of a, uh, you know, a, a miss of NAT that, you know, led to a, a bad outcome that's really stuck in your mind, uh, Tony or Elizabeth? There were actually two cases that made us decide that we were going to start working on this problem. Um, I'll talk about the first case. Well, actually, let me talk about the second case. So um, there was a child, and this really highlights so many of the points, and it was an eight-month-old former 24-week premature infant and had some issues with hypotonia and was in neonatal follow-up and had one of these socially not intact homes. The child would move between the mother and the father, and there was a history of domestic violence in the home. So this is a child who had been admitted with a, a skull fracture and a hematoma. And then we had a couple histories. I had one history where she flung her head back, and then the other was she was on the knee of the father's knee, which was the second history. And uh, so that was a good reason to have the uh, fracture, which this child had a skull fracture as well as a small bleed. Um, so she was doing better, and then her LFTs and skeletal surgery, a skeletal survey was normal, and uh, a retinal evaluation was not done. So this is a child who should have had a retinal uh, evaluation with an ophthalmologist. And so she went home the next day. There was no huddle. Uh, and so some of the different caregivers felt differently about what was actually going on. So she was crying for five days. She went to her primary care, no additional injuries, and then she was gassy. And then she went to the emergency room, and they thought she was fussy and constipated with a history of a skull fracture. And then she came back later that night, cardiac arrest, subarachnoid, and subdural hemorrhage and brain death. Mm -hmm. So, you know, this is, this is a child who haunted me. Sure. And... If you look, if and I use this uh, uh, poor child's uh, case uh, for teaching frequently, um, and this was a turning point for me when, you know, as a surgeon, I have one slide I always show where, uh, you know, ostrich with head in the sand, because who wants to think that this could happen in our community? Mm. Okay, and then, uh, Tony, any, uh, any comments on that? No, this was um, one, it was, uh, you know, the case that kind of got us all uh, thinking about how we needed to approach this, not only in terms of our screening, but in terms of how providers communicated with one another and what did it take for uh, everyone to be on the same page in terms of disposition and management. And, um, and I will say, you know, I really need to give credit here to Elizabeth because this was her passion project following this case to really start a grassroots effort to develop this NAT screening. It was only a little bit later that we thought that the proper way to keep going with this was to 
bring it under the trauma umbrella. Um, but it, it really hit home for all of us. And still, you know, this is the case that I present um, whenever I get the opportunity to talk about this topic. Sure. And then how about a, a case of a, a great save or a pickup, uh, maybe after initiating this, this detailed evaluation process? With joy, I will tell you about this case. <laughs> yes. Um, so as a surgeon, even a pediatric surgeon, I have a little bit of trepidation when I have an emergency room physician who's very skilled and also talks about child abuse and has done so for years. But I was called about a four-month-old uh, little girl, and there was a mid-humeral spiral fracture. And this child lived with the mother, the mother's boyfriend, and the mother's boyfriend's parents. And they are all lovely when you meet them. But this I'm just getting over the phone, but it was a twin pregnancy and, um, you know, 35-week uh, gestation as twins usually are. But the child was basically well. And so when I got the call, I remember speaking to the physician. I said, you know, I either have to believe what I've read or I don't, and I have to believe in this or not. So I said, let me come in, because he wanted to just send the child home. Sure. And I said, let me come in and see this child. So I saw the child, and, you know, there, the mouth frenuli was intact, and there wasn't bruising, but it's just the type of injury this child had. I said, no, we got to bring this child in. And then our child abuse expert saw the child the next day, and she said, oh, yeah, this is definitely child abuse. And then the twin brother was brought in, and he had a left ulnar metaphyseal fracture and a right tibial fracture. Uh. So, um, And so these children had good outcomes because we picked them up. Well, that's, yeah, that's a great pickup, and I think one that in many of our centers, unfortunately, would have been missed. So, uh, yeah, yeah, thanks for that. Um, and why don't we why don't we wrap up? And uh, I know Elizabeth, you wanted to uh, to talk about the uh, ACE. So uh, and probably many of us don't even know what that stands for. So uh, why don't you give us a quick explanation? Yes, I shall because I never knew what it meant until I went to a child abuse meeting and they said well, we're going to have a talk about ACEs. And I'm thinking, why are you talking about cardiac drugs? Well, so at any rate, an ACE is an adverse childhood event. And this is what's so important to pick up because some children are being abused, they never really surface. But any type of repetitive abuse, and it can be verbal, visual, physical, or sexual, alters the brain development and the, the child lives in a state of stress with uh, elevated cortisol levels. And then the brain develops differently in their epigenetics. The amygdala and the hippocampus differ in how they develop. And what this leads to, and Dr. Folletti is the brilliant individual who's an adult physician that did research on this, and he looked at his patients, he did weight loss, and he was trying to figure out why do some people fail weight loss, and he found out that uh, the vast majority had had adverse events in childhood. So when this happens, then the neurodevelopment is disrupted, and then there are issues because these children have different aspects with brain development. They have social, emotional, cognitive impairment, and then they have, they adopt health risk behaviors, and then they have disease issues, disability, and this is a group of people who go on to early death. So what happens as a child 
can affect the whole life. And he did additional research, and this occurs with, you can see it in people with hypertension, and I've been shocked in my own practice with a couple of children whom I've cared for for a completely unrelated thing, anorectal malformations, and I pick up a dilator to do an anal dilation. I've had two uh, mothers just, they kind of decompensated in front of me, and I found out they had been sexually abused as children. So what happens in our community, and this is a community issue, has far-reaching effects for the entire life when you look at this issue. This issue is uh, is so huge, um, Matt, that um, the American Academy of Pediatrics is really taking this forward um, in terms of um, how do children develop resiliency um, and how does that impact their long-term um, health. So we're at the, the very beginnings of really understanding what all this means. Yeah, well, that's great, and I think uh, I think the work that you uh, you both have been doing uh, has certainly led to a reduction in, in some of these events and picking up uh, some of these issues that that many of us would have missed before that. Uh, Andrew, you have any uh, other questions? Uh, just the last question. It, it it's clear to me. I think you guys please confirm that education definitely makes a difference here. Educating our students, our residents, our peers, our our staff, and the community. We all have a big responsibility for educating because that's really how we're going to heighten awareness about prevention and recognition. Am I right? Without question. 100%. And one other number I'd like to throw out because it's, it breaks my heart to hear it is if you look at child fatalities below age one from child maltreatment of other three types we talked about before, the rate is 6.5. Oh, I'm sorry, child fatality below age one is 18.83 per 100,000. And if you compare that to mortality from all childhood cancers, it's about three per 100,000. And if you look at the children death rate, you know, it's just, it's inconceivable in our country that this could occur. Okay, well, uh, you guys, anything else to add before we close? No, just thank you for having us. We uh, obviously feel very passionately about this subject, so we really appreciate the opportunity to talk to the to the EAST organization and the trauma surgeons and emergency department physicians that are across the country. Thank you. I wish to thank you also. And that wraps up another edition of TraumaCast, brought to you by the online education section of the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma. You can check out all of the great educational and career development resources available on the EAST website at www.east.org. And make sure you subscribe to the TraumaCast series so you don't miss any of our exciting upcoming programs and interviews. So if you're searching for cutting-edge science and research, professional education, networking and building relationships, and career development, remember that all you need to do is look to the East. Mm -hmm.